0: You know, one of the lawyers—the first execution I went to—one of the uh, one of the lawyers just said it was Kafka-esque, which, of course, seems kind of cliche, but it it's totally true. I mean, you you know, there's a there's a sign in there that at the front desk of the prison that says, um, you "Can't have a good day with a bad attitude, and you can't have a bad day with a good attitude." <laughs> um, which I'm sure on like a normal day, showing up for work might make sense, but right. it's weird, you know, as an understatement.
1: This is National Demystified, I am Alex Steed. National Demystified is a show in which I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. Today I talk with Stephen Hale, a reporter for the Nashville scene. Specifically, I talk with Hale about Tennessee's death penalty and his coverage of it. Nashville Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a video and content production house with office and production facilities here in the city, and by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts produced by Nashvillians. I spoke of this one last week, but it's ongoing and it's second to last episode in the mini series uh, just came out. It is Chris Gaines, the podcast, where hosts Ashley Spurgeon and Michael Eads explore the misunderstood career of Chris Gaines, the Garth Brooks pop alter ego, Uh, This is great. This is really great. This is right up my alley, which uh, is sort of, you know, amateur critical analysis of tangential uh, pieces of of pop history. (laughs) It's like the niche that I'm looking for all the time. So check it out. And... Two other quick things before I begin. One, I'm working with the storytelling event series Mortified to kick off an event here in Nashville. Um, We'd really love for you to be a part of it. Go to getmortified.com, click participate. And when you submit, uh, select Nashville as your city. I would love to see you there. The second is that uh, Nashville Demystified released a zine. It's an old fashioned black and white fold and staple deal based on our David Berman episode. Uh, we're very close to having given them all away, um, and I imagine we're going to get pretty wiped out during this week, which is Americana Fest, but if you want one, find us on Twitter and Instagram, send your mailing address, and if we have any left, we'll send one your way, uh, they're free, you just have to let us know that you want one. Finally, please find us on social, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and the holy unnecessary 2011 remake of Footloose, that is Facebook, ah, Footloose that 1984 classic about a boy from Chicago who moves to Utah and ensnares himself in the gritty underground world of playing chicken with tractors. Stephen Hill is a journalist who lives here in Nashville. He's been in the city for nearly a decade. Uh, He's on staff with the Nashville scene. He's been there for a few years. Uh, I think he's written for a bit longer, as he says in the interview. Uh, He dies in all this further, um, but he's been the witness to three state executions. Uh, He explains why covering the death penalty is important to him and how, contrary to uh, how it might appear to anyone tuning in in 2019, how Tennessee hasn't always been so enthusiastic about executions. Uh, This is sort of a new thing in 2019 into 2020, as you'll hear later, is sort of a big year for uh, the revival of executions here in Tennessee. I don't have a ton to add to this introduction that I don't say in our conversation outside of the fact that uh, literally the only element of, quote, culture shock I experience upon moving here early this year is what feels like regular use of capital punishment. You are sort of always reading about it or seeing some information about executions Uh, I think because there are a lot that are happening right now. Um, and it's just surreal to think about, obviously I knew that the, you know, that capital punishment in general, uh, was a thing that existed in other States when I lived in a state that did not, um, did not, uh, do that. Um, but I I don't know. I, I go into it further here about how it has affected me in one way or another, just seeing that the state is, is regularly doing this. And we talk a lot about what that means politically, what that means morally and just like what it means logistically. So yeah, I I was psyched to have Steven on this, uh, episode. I was psyched to have this conversation with him. It's not a conversation I thought I would be having for my fun loving Nashville podcast, but here we are. And just so you have this, here's a super quick Wikipedia. Fueled primer on capital punishment in Tennessee. In Tennessee, hanging was a legal method of execution until 1913 when executions were suspended for two years. And then 1915 rolls around, uh, <laughs> comes around. Uh, the electric chair was introduced and used for 45 years. Between 1960 and 2000, the death penalty was not applied in the state. Um, The death penalty was reinstated in 1975, but executions did not resume until 2000 uh, with lethal injection that had become a legal method of execution at the end of the period. However, those sentenced to death before 1998 can request to be executed in the electric chair. Moreover, Faced with difficulties in acquiring the drugs needed for lethal injections, Tennessee law was amended to once more permit electrocution as a backup method in case any problems with acquiring the drugs needed for lethal injections uh, presented themselves. November 16th, 2018, as executions had resumed earlier that year after nearly a decade of hiatus, the Tennessee Supreme Court has set six execution dates between May 2019 and April 2020, Should these executions be carried out, neither uh, neither be rescheduled or stayed, it would lead Tennessee to execute as many inmates in one year as it did in almost a 10-year hiatus. That is why, and this is me, Alex, talking, that is why it seems like things have ramped up because they have. Um, so there you have it. That is Tennessee's uh, history with capital punishment. That is why it seems like it's everywhere right now. It is everywhere right now. And we're going to talk with Stephen Hale about that. All right, everyone, uh, let's talk with Stephen.
0: So Stephen Hale, I'm a staff writer at the Nashville scene. Um, I've been full time there for uh, seven years, a little mm. over seven years. I was freelancing for a couple of years before that. I write um news, you know a lot of Colonel justice stuff and some politics and other stuff too um you know that's the scene's a pretty small staff, so we right. all do a little bit of everything, but that's my main focus so
1: and i've seen you i I've seen you write about so I didn't think about okay, <laughs> I moved here from Portland, maine
0: okay, I was going to ask where you came from yeah.
1: yeah i came from I came from Portland, Maine, and there are few so leaving from a northern state to move to a southern state people have commentary about you doing that right sure and they're like oh are you ready for this are you ready for right this? right a lot of a lot of the preemptive stuff people are like are you ready for were things that i actually haven't had any run run-ins with or experiences one way or another usually you're like you know new england's a pretty you know culturally atheistic you know mm. are you ready for people to be you know, uh, religious or very sure, sure. that sort of thing. Um, um, n- none of that has been an issue. One thing I wasn't ready for is this state has the death penalty; it yeah. uses it.
0: Yeah, well, that's and that's a relatively new, uh, well, not new for the state to have the death penalty, but uh, new for it to be using it again.
1: So, um, what what's happening?
0: So it's a fair question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So last year, a um, little over a year ago, August twenty eighteen, state. Executed a prisoner for the first time in uh, almost a decade. Um, And, you know, they had – the state had been trying to for some time. In fact, Blair Eirich, who was executed last year, that first execution, he had been scheduled uh, a few years before. In 2014, he was scheduled to die. It was actually – a little strange because I was scheduled to witness that execution, and Mm -hmm. it got called off. A lot of that had to do with just – legal fights over the lethal injection drugs and and just a a number of a number of other kind of legal Mm. back and forth sort of things Uh, but yeah but it had been a while and so now tennessee while executions keep going down nationwide like as a total tennessee is now reviving its death penalty and is one of a small handful of states who you know still executing people i mean this year i think i think i'm right in saying four or five states have executed someone maybe yeah yeah you know texas does it a lot but um yeah they're in a we're in a small club now so why
1: why is that like why is it why is it newly
0: well i mean uh and the the best answer i have on that is that the, the the folks in charge around here uh you know are intent on doing it um the uh, this was an issue in the Supreme Court. We have elected Supreme Court justices mm. and it, it, it became an issue in the Supreme Court race a few years back because the lieutenant governor at the time was sort of intimating that these justices hadn't been scheduling executions, had not had sort of been letting these uh, guys sit on death row without scheduling their, scheduling their executions and these cases were dragging on and on. And so, um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, we have this weird thing where we have these governors, uh, you know, the past two governors who have spoken quite a bit about their Christian faith and and even Bill Lee, our governor now, has been involved in prison uh ministry and mm-hmm. and talks a lot about rehabilitation and has talked a lot about criminal justice reform, but has has signed off on two executions now. So, I don't have a great answer on that to be honest with yeah. you. I mean, uh I suspect that uh, a lot of the a lot of the state's politicians just assume r- rightly I guess that uh the public is still behind them on it. Right. But, right.
1: You're right because if they weren't there would be I, I guess yeah but it. um
0: okay. but yeah but so yeah. That's kind of a and so now we've had 5 5 in a year or a little mm-hmm. more than a year. Um there's one more this year so. And you you have witnessed uh three of them three of them
1: can you just tell can you just tell me why journalists witness sure executions
0: yeah no it's a it's a really fair question um and it's one i've gotten a lot because i you know when you tell someone you're going to do that it's like a it's not a normal assignment Um, right i mean i guess i have two answers one being just sort of why i did it why, why it mattered to me and then one generally i mean the 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 general answer is that when they execute a prisoner they do it in a room in you know in the middle of the prison and and this it's the state uh on behalf of the public executing a person mm-hmm. and killing them and so i mean just sort of the the general answer for why journalists go there is to uh for transparency's sake you sure. know so that the state it's it, you know the state has protocols and laws about how they do this how they carry out an execution and journalists uh being there Allow someone to see that they're following that, that they're doing what they say they're going to do, that they're not, um, you know, breaking the law or breaking mm-hmm. their own protocols, and just just to kind of uh, be able to come out and tell the people this is what it was, this is what it was like, this is what they did, you know. Right. Um, because without that, I mean, the the, the I mean, you've probably seen this. I mean, after they do an execution, the announcement the state puts out is like two sentences. They just say the uh, the death sentence was carried out. time of death was this. You know, right. they, don't, they don't tell you anything. Um, and that's become particularly important uh, recently with all the legal fights over these methods and lethal injection drugs because you have journalists who come out and say, this person was making this noise, this mm-hmm. person was choking, they were moving when they weren't supposed to be or that kind of thing. And so that has become important in in those legal fights about what drugs they use. Right. Um, for me, I, I've always cared about the death penalty and it's something i've been interested in and felt strongly about and then as a reporter started writing on it and there's there's a not a lot of transparency around the death penalty um states do not tell the public a lot about how they're doing what they're doing and you know from from where they get lethal injection drugs to to a number of other issues and so as someone who's always banging on about how uh, you know there needs to be more transparency, um, and who I've always kind of felt like if if the state is going to kill someone, I insist that they let citizens watch them do it. You know, they mm. can't do it in secret. And right. so, I felt like if I'm going to say that I and I was in a position to be one of those witnesses, that I needed to do it. Um, certainly not looking to set any records for yeah. for the most of them that I've seen or anything like that but I did feel like it was important to to bear witness to it. So I hope I hope that answers your question. No, yeah, that's kind of It does. You the know, idea. I'm actually
1: sort of this is speaks to a cynicism I'm not psyched that I have, but I'm sort of surprised that journalists are still allowed to <laughs> I realize that it probably causes more problems than not if a journalist is not allowed.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah, I, mean, I know where that cynicism comes comes from. Though yeah. I mean, they the prison system in particular, you know, is just not telling you what's going on is not the top of their priority list for sure. You know, they're not they just they're they're not that interested in that. I mean, they do it because they have to. Um, but so yeah, I don't. I think that cynicism may be unfortunate, but I don't. It's it's warranted. I think. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean. You know, for the time being, there are law says there has to be uh, seven media witnesses there or at least spots for seven. I, mean, I suppose if there weren't enough people who were volunteering, that'd be different. But there are there are seven spots for media witnesses and the executions and, of course, lawyers and things are there, too. But
1: Do you how has your I guess what was your position? Before you had gone in as a witness and how how has both writing i mean not just exclusively being a witness but how is writing about the subject mm-hmm. and and uh, having witness executions you know either changed or intensified or or yeah shifted um, where you were at
0: i've always been opposed to the death penalty um, I think for a long time you know that that was just sort of for the more basic reasons you would imagine that killing someone as a punishment for killing someone doesn't make sense or mm. doesn't feel morally right or that sort of thing. The way that it's reporting on this, uh, first, just setting aside witnessing the executions for a moment, I mean, reporting on these cases has deepened my understanding of just how arbitrary the death penalty is. Um, in the, and by that I mean that if you commit one crime – uh, in County A in year B, you know, y- y- you might get the death penalty. If you commit that same crime in County C in year D, you know, you won't. Right. Uh, in this state today, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Shelby County sentences people to death. There hasn't been someone sentenced to death in Nashville in quite a while. You know, the the number of jurisdictions that still hand down death sentences is decreasing. So we have this punishment that is supposedly for the worst of the worst, but that's not how it gets handed out. It gets handed out depending on where you do what. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the men who have been executed in our state in the past year, their cases have shown that. You know, Ed Zagorski, who was executed in, uh, last year, he was the, the second man executed in, in 2018, he was convicted and sentenced to death for a double murder during a large drug deal. Um, And, you know, as with all these cases, the the actual details of what both sides argued happened there are complicated, but that's what he was convicted of. And his lawyers argued throughout, you know, the years that they were fighting this case, they pointed out that there are, you know, a number of people convicted of killing more people during a drug-related homicide than that who did not get the death penalty right you know it just there there are guys in tennessee prisons who have killed five people during a drug deal and don't have the death penalty don't have the weren't sentenced to death so it it becomes hard to really see why how how you can say well it's the worst of the worst and it's it's just not you know it's just just sort of plainly not Mm. um and one piece of that that tennessee has not really had to confront yet because the only men executed here so far in this in the past year have been white men is that the the racial statistics of the death penalty are appalling as well i mean you know the uh tennessee's death row is disproportionately black again you wouldn't necessarily maybe think that if you're watching the news and you keep seeing Mm -hmm. these white guys being executed but the numbers suggest that the death penalty is, is racist in a number of ways. I mean, whether it's black men being sentenced to death or the fact that a lot of times the race of the victim comes into play. You know, mm. if you, broadly speaking, uh, we, you know, have punished people more harshly for killing white people than for killing black people. Mm. That's all stuff that just when you get into these case files and you're covering covering these cases, you start reading through all these this information you see. I mean, the other thing, though, that I really... I mean, it's probably changed my life. Is just the under reading through these men's personal histories, their backgrounds, the the abuse they suffered as children. Every, you know, five men have been executed here in a little more than a year. They all have either childhood abuse, mental illness, or both in their background. You know, sexual abuse, uh, p- p- abuse by parents or families. I mean, it's just horrific stuff. And it's not to excuse killing someone, of course, or raping someone or anything like that, but it is a, it is context that, you know, for me, when I, as a a reporter, but also just as a human reading through these things, I go, I know the childhood I had, and I was very lucky. My parents did not abuse me. They, you know, had very loving parents who were able to provide for me. Um, I didn't struggle with with poverty or debilitating mental illness or any of those things by no control of my own, right? I just, you know, just lucky or, you know. But I just think switch me out with this guy. Billy Ray Irick was uh, first put in a mental institution when he was six years old. You know, give me his life and I don't know how it would have turned out. Right. You know, I don't know if would I have committed the crime he committed. I don't know. But I mean, it's hard to read those stories and think, oh, well the only issue here is that this person is just morally inferior to me. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of other inputs, I guess, if that makes sense that you start to realize. And so that's the thing that I really haven't been able to shake in covering these cases. It's just that, and that's true of people in the prison system broadly too, not just on death row, but it's sort of gets heightened, of course, when it's the people that we're executing.
1: Do you, I mean, I, I've been surprised, I think, by, the The thing that's surprising to me walk, walking into this this place in six months is just how frequently I hear of the death penalty, and mm-hmm. it's probably like in the lead up. There's like a lead up when right, someone is right. going to get executed. Right. Someone gets executed. There's like information. Then there's like maybe an appeal. Key. Like in the past, it seems like in the past couple of days there are advancements with with a specific sort of an appeal. Right. So it's back in the news, and just like. I didn't think. I never thought about how psychologically fascinating that is. Is that it's like if you're in a place where constantly you're being reminded that if the
0: state really wants to, they can kill you. <laughs> you're like, yeah. Well, so that's interesting because I was shit. gonna. I was gonna ask you. <laughs> g- coming from how long did you live in Maine?
1: Oh, for, I mean, on and off forever.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, if you don't mind me asking, no, no. Uh, what was your level of like awareness of the death penalty? Just living, living. The last kind of growing up or whatever, you know,
1: the last time. Oh, God, who was executed? I I was in it was like one of the famous serial killers Mm -hmm. in in like March of 94 was killed in Florida. Yeah. And I was at Disney World when that happened. And I remember we were driving and I listened to a radio and I was, you know, 10 and I just like heard the countdown and, you know, I was like, oh, okay, like this is a thing that happens. And that's the last coverage I heard of the death penalty. Like it almost feels like a dream, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm absolutely well aware that people are executed in in, in particular states. So I'm actually absolutely, absolutely well aware that Texas is, mm-hmm. is one of the states that I heard on a, on a regular basis. Um, I, very similar conclusions about the the logic of states doing this especially particularly the moral logic if not Mm -hmm. just like the logic logic um but never did it never i never thought of like the reality of what it's like to be around that yeah um and and i know like a, a good friend of mine uh sarah marshall has a podcast called you're wrong about and she during our whole friendship she was writing about the Ted Bundy case It all got turned into like a a 20,000 word piece for The Believer Mm -hmm. and so I'm very intimately aware of how the death penalty sort of played into that and like what happened around that circus and that's that's it it sort of blips in and out um, and like almost pop culture and then to be in a place where that is regularly where it's sort of like regularly a part of the news Mm -hmm. I haven't fully thought about what that means to me But it is interesting to be reminded. For sure. That it's there. Like, and I already know that, like, I already know that, like... As you said, I mean, the, like prison system in particular ways is already uh, sort of a uh, an institution that needs some work. <laughs> <Let's> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I got that artfully I, put. Yeah, I got that. That many people, particularly people of color, are getting the wrong end of the stick in that system. Right. But then when you're, you know, when you come to a place and it's like there is sort of a constant, of, especially. And I don't. I know that you read about politics. I know that you're a journalist. I don't at all want to put you in a weird situation, have to speak to anything. Not at all. But especially in a place in any state is like this where the politicians especially the conservative politicians seem to be extraordinarily corrupt about the way they go about their business it,
0: <laughs> it, it does seem that way uh, yeah well it's interesting what you say about um the way that it's a it, it's a blip you know kind of like there's a lot of coverage and then it goes away there's a lot of coverage and goes away i'm sure you're experiencing kind of a interesting version of it from moving here right as the state is like restarting right. this execution but you're saying I, it wasn't
1: like this for years no for yeah it
0: was that, i mean i you know um just because there were no scheduled executions so there was no like um and that you know in some ways that's that's an in, probably an indictment of the media in that these cases are still worth covering even before someone's name is on the calendar sure. but obviously that heightens the focus on it but the th- it is interesting to me because the weird thing about these guys on death row is You know they're they're locked away from society and and i don't just mean in the sense that they're in a prison but even more so than regular prisoners i mean that you know the media access to death row has been restricted greatly in in recent years and so where i mean there are times where you might be able to watch an interview with a death row prisoner on tv right and so now so you're seeing a guy's face he's Mm -hmm. talking you're hearing his voice you know now if i write a story on one of them i'd do my best to reach out to people, their lawyers and stuff, see can we get pictures that aren't just mug shots um, and you know it's not about being sympathetic but it's, it is about humanizing the person because regardless of what you think of them or what they did it's like this is a human being and here's they are um, and and people in prison are reduced to their mugshot and their crime often and that's like especially so with men and I say men there's only one woman on Tennessee's death row, it's mostly men um, on death row is you don't have interaction with them, they're not so then when they're when the execution comes up, like you're saying the coverage starts heating up, it's this I mean, I know what it's like for me to try to inhale all the information about these cases. I can only imagine being just someone in the public who's not obsessing over it. Um, And that's not a judgment. They're living their lives, you know, and then they pick up the news. They're trying to be informed. And then they're having to try to take in all this information about this person and this case and this horrible crime that they did. They probably have never heard of this person or they're, you know, so it's like it's easy to see why it can persist because people aren't made to confront it very often. Um, And we can't empathize with people that we don't. See or aren't around. We can't even begin to, you know. It's like it's not really. I'm, I'm rambling now, but does that no, make sense? Like no, it does make sense. I it kind of. of it, it's that, easy for the public to just sort of not think about it because why would right. you? It's, you know, like, and
1: you just blip when it's gonna happen.
0: Yeah, and it's and I'm and sure happen. a lot of people, very thoughtful people, watch the coverage, they read stories or whatever, and they they have they think about it. They're like, oh, this is complicated for these reasons, but but then it goes on, and so it's like this weird. It's this weird issue that, um that is like that
1: well the way i mean the it's interesting the way that you put it and we've seen that happen across the board in the past 25 years about everything i mean like what access there is to war what access there is to right right and so and to the point where to the point where your mental math or ethical math is reduced to a very black and white picture it's like Someone was someone was executed. While well, I saw the crimes, you know, thank God they're not around anymore, right? And not not actually having to think about the fact. Well, like I help subsidize someone getting murdered, mm-hmm. you know, which is like a
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a much more complicated sort of thought process. And right. no, you're, I think you're you're exactly right about the, the like war reporting. I mean, that's obviously quite different from the reporter's point of view. I mean, the the experience of of covering military combat is not one I've I've had. But in terms of the importance of it, I mean, you were asking me earlier about why journalists cover the executions. I do think there's a parallel there in the sense that, you know, I remember some of my first memories of watching, um, actually, this is an interesting thing I hadn't thought of, but I mean, the first execution I can remember is Timothy McVeigh's execution. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember a whole lot of the coverage other than hearing that they had in, he had been executed by lethal injection. And I remember seeing his, face because they were showing his face a lot on TV you know and you know I guess it was not probably around the same time I remember you know um, coverage of military conflicts I mean I remember watching when we invaded Iraq on TV and stuff and there's this just this CNN shot of of bombs falling and things you know and as, as an older as an adult I've since now read on the ground reporting people have written books about who reported from there and things right. and I have a much better understanding of what war is like best I can have without having been there obviously and that makes a huge difference in my life and to me yeah the executions are a a version of that in which like I don't think you can really fully understand it what it it means to kill someone regardless of what they've done unless you see it and my job you know whether it's an execution or a city council meeting or Whatever is to tell you to help you see something that you weren't there to see, it must Um, make
1: city council meetings real weird.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, yes, although those those things can they can be sure interminable. So, um, you know,
1: the Timothy McVeigh one is actually it's interesting, that's the one that I think shaped my opinion. Interesting, And, and um for a number of reasons one is i have no sympathy for timothy mcveigh however however i was raised around a lot of people who were a lot like timothy mcveigh really his, yeah. his the guy he he uh, i forget the, his his a uh, protégé's name not his protégé but the guy he was with uh, he had traces to maine and was sort of around maine and reminded me of a lot of guys that i knew and like i again by by It wasn't that alone, but it was that mixed with the Onion headline after he died, which was, all is better now in Oklahoma City. Right. (laughs) And I was like, boom.
2: (laughs) Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Timothy McVeigh's death by lethal injection Monday has made everything perfect in Oklahoma City. His 168 victims' loved ones describing themselves as feeling 100% better. I just know my baby girl is up there in heaven. Smiling down on this execution, happy as can be, said a beaming George Brown, whose seven-year-old daughter Brianna died in the 1995 Federal Building blast. Her death is avenged, and everything's great, said Oklahoma City school teacher Sherry Olsacker, 37, who was blinded in the bombing. You can't imagine how healing this is. My eyesight's even returned. Moments after McVeigh was pronounced dead, 168 white doves were seen soaring over the city, racing toward a suddenly cloudless horizon that beckoned the dawn of a glorious new day. Everything better now in Oklahoma City. June thirteenth, two 2001. The
0: Onion. Savage headline, but that, that's <laughs> why The Onion is genius. Because Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I'm glad you said that about uh, you have no sympathy for Timothy McVeigh. I mean, neither do I. Sure. Um, I, but I think it's a really important point because the th- thing I get a lot when I write these stories, a lot of times they're focused on the, you know, when an execution is coming up. I'm writing about the man who's going to be executed, his case, what is this guy like, what does he say, what did, yes, what crime did he commit, but what has he been like? I'm just trying to find out as much right. as I can about them. And so a lot of times I will get emails or messages. People say like, you know, why, why are we you know, why are you shedding tears over this guy, or why are we spending so much time sympathizing with this guy, or whatever the the way they put it is? And yeah, it's to me, it's it's not about sympathy. I mean, I I do, as a side note, I do actually have sympathy for for some of these yeah. men um, because they did a horrific thing, and in in many cases, they're essentially a different person now. This is thirty years ago, um, and I think it's worth considering, even though most of us, thankfully, have not committed a murder. I think it's worth considering what it would be like to be reduced to the worst thing you've ever done. So sure. I do actually have sympathy for them. I have sympathy for the way that they're going to be killed and what it must be like to walk into a room knowing that you're going to be killed. Like I, but but I say all that as a side note because when I'm doing my job, my it's not about sympathy. It's I'm I'm not motivated by sympathy. Right. I'm motivated by. This is a human being that we're about to do this to. We, the state, you know, and as you pointed out, we, the taxpayers who are are paying for this and for – it's our representatives who are doing it.
1: Right. I have a bad enough job if I'm in Maine and there's a bad plow job that I help pay for. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, who, it's the frustrating. second we're yeah. doing wild shit like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally, uh, yeah. And so – not again. Not to go off on a, on a long tangent, but I just it. It's not. It's important, I think, to to know. It's not about sympathy, sure. and I do think it's crucial to to remember the victims and to write about them too and humanize them too, because they've also been reduced to right. the worst moment of their life. Obviously, the victims who are dead, but their families and stuff. But it's just to say that it's about trying to make us confront the totality of what we're dealing with here. Right. This isn't just a cartoon villain that we're now going to. A race. It's a human being who is going to experience this thing. And l- listen, my inbox is proof that there are a lot of people who are still just fine with that. Sure. But if we're going to do it, I think we ought to at least look it in the face.
1: Well, you know, my, you know and I know what you mean. I mean, in the thing that, uh, you know, Sarah Marshall, who I uh, was talking about earlier, the thing that she and I talked about for a long time, the thing I thing I know she writes about is that the the problem a problem with reducing people, especially to like evil or mm-hmm. to sort of this untouchable place, is we don't see the themness in us, right? Or we don't see the 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 piece of them that we helped create, and not specifically individually helped create, but we culturally society, helped yeah, yeah. And, exactly. And similarly, I mean, it's like you know, if there's if there, I can't imagine a better era. Uh, of being of being reminded of the dangers of only calling people wearing pointy hoods racist, right? Or 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 having racist ideas, mm-hmm. right? And because I mean, you know, <laughs> that was our standard for a long time, and let's see where we are right now. So yeah. I mean, I do think I th- I mean I think one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest dangers in sort of being you know reduct- reductivist in any way around sort of the, the the people who we're talking about is we don't we don't leave room any possibility of seeing how to fix it or how to make it better or how to not make people who do these things.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, again, that onion headline you, you quoted, I mean, yeah, there's just so many ways that you can look at something like the death penalty from one of them being that we don't really have any reason to believe it's a deterrent. So just as a, strictly speaking as sort of a practical matter, it's like, you know, what's the point of doing this it, you know we know it costs more to by the time you act, actually execute someone you the state has spent more money than if they just sentenced them to life in prison or whatever sure there are a lot of victims and victims families who oppose these executions um not all for sure i mean i i certainly don't speak for them but there you know i there are plenty of them who say you oh, know i don't need that to happen i mm-hmm. you know this you mentioned uh, the abu ali Abdurahman's case who's the one that's right. been in the news here recently you know this is a great example of how we shouldn't just generalize we gotta just take it all in and look at it for what it is. so he participated in this um, a murder during a robbery and that left one person dead and a woman stabbed but alive. Her two children were there. They were in court the other day you know when he was in court, I saw them sitting there in the front row crying, you know that was good for me to confront sure. i write a I write about a lot of these. I write a lot about these guys on death row it's good to see there's the person who's been affected by what this person did and they're still affected by it the the son of the i think it was i, th- I think i'm right in saying it was his son of the man who was killed told the da um glenn funk i still want to you know burn his ass like this guy should still be executed uh the woman who was stabbed but lived according to the the district attorney said she's forgiven him and doesn't need to see him executed her daughter said we're not it's not like we're hell-bent on seeing him executed we don't want him to get out of prison though because he did this horrible thing so it's like there's a whole spectrum of that and but again it's it's worth confronting that and not reducing any of those people to caricatures right um but well, I also th-
1: anyone who any, in that whole oh yeah the whole, of exactly about,
0: exactly yeah, yeah just uh, just and then and then you know we can deal with it on the other end if we honestly do that but uh, so yeah for me it's like that's the big that's the biggest motivating factor to covering these cases and witnessing the executions is just you know to try to. Put that out there, I guess.
1: How? So walk, walk us through just like what the when you when you go and you Mm -hmm. you you, not a spectator. What are you? Uh, A witness. When you're a witness, excuse me. um, Just walk us through walking through the doors and and get us to the end of the night.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, on these uh, on the days there's executions, there's obviously a lot of extra security at the prison. Show up before you enter the prison property there they stop you there they kind of you know if you're a reporter you the one of the media communications people is there to kind of check you in and give you a name tag and things and they check your car they've got some dogs out there and stuff like that um there's a set this is a side note from what you're asking but there's a separate they kind of direct people who follow the news on the nights of these executions will see the the pictures of the vigils that mm-hmm. the folks hold outside the prison. There's kind of a designated area for, it's very strange there's, you, you go over there and it's two fenced off areas. One says for the death penalty, one says against, you know, and there's, so it's just, um, <clears throat> it's just a strange scene. You know, sure. they got a tent set up in the parking lot, uh, which is where the media will hold a press conference afterwards. And I've, I've heard, I've talked to prisoners who from the prison, see that tent and they all know what oh, they know that well, they know what that means which right. i can't imagine what that must be oh like to be okay. inside the prison and know and you know it's just so alienating I, I can imagine anyway so you get in you know and uh yeah they they lead you into the prison um you know these executions are scheduled for like seven and they lead you in there about five twenty, you know something mm-hmm. like that it's kind of a long slow process they take you in and the security at the river bend at the prison is it's like it's like going through a small airport you know you mm. take off your belt your shoes go through the metal detector a couple scanners that kind of thing um it's a very strange scene when you're going in there for an execution because it's just um it's it's you know, one of the lawyers—the first execution I went to—one of the uh, one of the lawyers just dis- said it was Kafka esque, which, of course, seems kind of cliche, but it it's totally true. I mean, you you know, there's a there's a sign in there that at the front desk of the prison that says, um, you "Can't have a good day with a bad attitude, and you can't have a bad day with a good attitude." <laughs> Jesus. Um Which I'm sure on like a normal day, showing up for work might make sense, but right. it's weird, you know as an understatement when you're walking there for an execution you see that you're going through security everyone's being kind of kind of nice i mean i haven't had negative interactions with the prison staff but in a strange way it feels wrong to have a normal interaction with a person on a night like that you walk in and they say oh how are you doing and they're being and you're like well you know they offer you coffee feel weird about taking the coffee i'm gonna sit here and have coffee before an execution well I got to work tonight, so I, I have the coffee. It's like a weird – it's just a very – everything's upside down. Um, the first execution I went to, and uh, me and all the other reporters commented on this, the front lobby, I guess you'd call it, of the prison was just like thick with the smell of fresh paint. Mm. And they had freshly painted the lobby because it's a big night. You know, everyone's going to be – coming in there and see it's just strange so yeah they bring you in there we bring you to a conference room where you kind of sit and wait you got to wait for a while largely because there are a couple different groups of people there to see an execution in theory uh there there might be family members of the victim and they're separate from the media which i think makes sense i mean it's normally my job to want to talk to everyone but i think in those circumstances it makes sense that they don't make the victims family members walk around with a bunch of reporters So they have keep them separate, and they they hold you in a conference room while they're moving around. Um, maybe this is like way too much detail that you're asking about, but uh, you That's know they great. like I said they you know bring you some bring some state government coffee, and at a certain point come in with anyone who's visited a prison will be familiar with this. But I mean you you can't bring anything in there. Um, on a normal night much less when there's an execution you know you can't have your phone most of the time they won't let you have a watch i think sometimes maybe if it's like a like jewelry in a sense they'll let you keep but you know i can't bring a notebook They, they so when you get in there they give you an, a notepad and a and two pencils which again is like a really weird feeling because you know they're facilitating you doing your job but it's just weird to be handed a notepad to have a, a state employee come in and say, "Oh, here you go. It's, a, it's in a Ziploc bag. It's a notepad and two pencils, and you know that they're giving you this so that you can take notes while they kill a person." Right. You know, it's just like all these. To me, the people always ask me what it's like to witness an execution. It's all the little details that are haunting to me. It's just like little things that are so strange when you when you're outside of the context. Once you think about them, so you sit in there for a little bit, they and then they come and get you and kind of take you back to toward where where the execution chamber is and at Riverbend that means walking outside and then walking through two large fences there are two gates through barbed wire fences um, which for me that's the section of the prison that's always kind of like there's the moment that it hits you I'm in a maximum security prison mm-hmm. and not an airport you know um, bring you in there and one one kind of grim feature of the riverbend layout is that the execution chamber is basically adjacent to a large visiting visitation gallery. So when people come and visit their family members who are incarcerated or something, there's kind of a large open room they can sit at tables. I don't know if they know this when they visit, but one of the doors in that room leads to the execution chamber. Mm. So, you know, they bring you in there and then this is a, by, by now it's about six thirty or so. And, and I don't actually know why this is but they turn the lights off uh when you get in there. I get why the lights are off later because they want you to be able to see and they don't want the lights on in there but it's just weird. So you, every the three times I've I've done that, I've sat in the dark in that room for 10, 15, 20 minutes before um and typically it's it's like I said it's seven media witnesses usually um, the attorney for the person who's being executed, an attorney from the state, and then a couple correction staff and this is the other thing that I feel like you know we can never forget you mentioned it earlier is that prison staff are being asked to do this too. Um, so you know a communications staff member is is sort of escorting the media around and sits there in for the execution um, there's another person who uh, accompanies the media where they go and it's for sort of security reasons um, so you've got all these other staff members who have to participate in this as well and then yeah around you know it depends the timing on everything but shortly after that they open the curtain and so you're in this room and there's kind of a large window in front of you with a few f- frames you know and you're looking into this like really brightly lit execution chamber and you know depending on the the method you're either looking at a a guy on a gurney mm-hmm. or a guy in, a, in in an electric chair already sitting there in the chair um, and one really strange thing about that is about when you first come into that viewing gallery is like you can hear what's going on in there so like I remember I've witnessed one lethal injection and two electrocutions, so I remember Billy Ray Irick's execution, which was a lethal injection. I mean, we could hear what I presumed were the wheels of the gurney squeaking when they brought him in. You know, he was on the gurney and they wheeled him. Um, In the case of an electrocution, there's these buckets that have saline solution that they soak the sponges in to conduct the electricity. And Again, getting back to what I said about those little details. Those are things that stick with me for whatever reason. But I mean I remember both times hearing you know that sound of a one of those Home Depot buckets, you drop the handle and it goes bounce, bounces off of it? That sound, you know, echoing in from the execution chamber into the where we're sitting. It's just little things like that. You're just sitting there in the dark, like hearing these things, and it's I don't know. It's very kind of kind of haunting. But yeah, then they, you know, they open the curtain and and they get on with it. But, you know, and there's there's a guy I think a lot about is the Riverbend Warden, um, Tony Mays. He is in the chamber for the executions, whether it's a lethal injection or an electrocution. Um, you know, I can't imagine what, what that's like. And he knows these guys on a first-name basis. It's not like, you know, he he's works at the prison he goes in there you know he goes in there to to get them when it's when it's time so so yeah
1: when 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 it happens when mm-hmm. when the when the um when the person's executed what is the what's the overall tone after like what happens well wh-
0: i mean when it's happening and this is a, you know a blessing in a way uh, in a selfish sense which is that in the moment as a reporter you're just so focused on I have to take good notes I have to be able to tell people what happened Mm -hmm. so I'm you're watching everything trying to write it down and trying to make sure you don't miss anything what time everything's happening um you know what the person's body's doing what sounds are they making all that kind of stuff so it's not that it's distracting, but the sort of this hyper focus that actually, I think, kind of gets you through it in a way. Mm. I mean, it's like um, so the tone is just very it, everyone's quiet and just scribbling, you know, basically. Um, afterwards, you know, I mean, in my in my experience, the the other reporters that I've witnessed executions with have been completely professional and and really helpful. I mean, I don't think you can. It's it's extremely like helpful on a hard night like that to be with other reporters because you're you're essentially all working together. I mean, you're, everyone's taking their own notes. You're all taking your own observations, but afterwards, you know, it's oh, let me make sure I got uh, his last words. What did did we all hear that correctly? And what you know that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Just because you're operating as a pool, so when you come out, you're all together going to tell everyone what happened. So we're trying to make sure that it, everyone got it right and that we you know. So that's, the tone is always very serious and kind of focused, I right, guess. So you have something say. to
1: do, right? Right. Like, whereas, like, if you just had to, like, go and get into your car, that would be probably.
0: Right. I mean, you know, I am not used to being, I mean, this, the topic is difficult, but this is enjoyable. Sitting here with you, uh, you know, I could do this, but I'm not used, to, I'm not a TV reporter. Right. I'm not, so I'm not used to, like, when you come out of that prison, you stand there in front of a bunch of cameras and give a press conference. I mean, it's always funny doing – there's always a few TV reporters who are witnesses as well. And, of course, they're great at that. They get up and they're just sort of very composed and they just state everything in these perfect sentences. And I'm up there sort of stammering, looking through my notes. Like, you know, it's um, – so that – and it's a, it's a hard moment to to try to sort of like condense what you just saw – right after you saw it it's you know it's that's a difficult task mm-hmm. but to your point it also you're in the mode of like i have to try to do this well try to be clear try to explain what's going on um and then yeah and then the, you know they're like all right you know get out i mean they they basically say okay you got an hour to like get your trucks and all your tv stuff off the property cuz it's still a prison you know right and then you know yeah that's always a weird a weird night just personally because um, you know, like I said I, I or like I think I mentioned to you earlier I mean I have I have uh, two young kids and um, married and I, you know coming home from a thing like that and walking in the door and it's like there's my wife eating dinner or watching TV you know it's like just a weird thing to sort of like drop back into your normal life after right, that
1: that's the only thing I could think about the entire time you were talking about that, is yeah. that you that you have a wife and two kids
0: yeah it's you know and I mean they're young it's not like I have to talk to them about this I just say right. like I have to work tonight um, they, okay. You know, they, they're not, they're four and one. They don't. So I'm spared that sort of difficult, right. like, well, what are you doing? But yeah, it's, it's just, it's just strange, you know? Um, and like I said, I think a lot about all the other people involved in that process and what that must be like for them. Um, I mean, it's helpful to me that I feel a clarity of purpose, kind of, mm-hmm. I don't feel guilty about having been there. For the most part, I mean, there is a weird aspect to it that, um, and this really hit me more like the second time, and then this this most recent execution, the third one I'd witnessed, that you you do kind of feel like part of a production, mm-hmm. and I think it's an important role to play, but you're still like you're mo- they're mo- you're going where they're going. Usually, as a reporter, you're going into a situation. And, yeah, maybe you've been granted access or they've let you in or whatever. But usually you're trying to be independent in the sense of, like, just whatever I see here, I'm going to go where I want to go. I'm going to get the info I need whether you want me to get it or not. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to sound like some kind of you know badass or whatever, but that's just your job. You're trying to, like, right. disrupt th- – you're not trying to just go along with what the people in charge will let you do. You're trying to find out more if you can or do more if you can. When you show up at a maximum security prison and – to witness an execution you know you can't be like i'm gonna wander off into this room and see-. like they 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 take you to the rooms they want you to go and then they walk you out and then they tell you to leave and so you do sort of feel like part of it in a way and I, again i don't i don't regret it i don't feel like conflicted about the importance of doing it but it is a weird feeling because of that
1: do you what do you think is the it sounds like you get asked about this a lot um what is the thing that you find surprises people the most about when when you recount sort of what happens or, or, hmm. or what the evening is like?
0: That's a good question. I mean, a lot of people recently that I talked to are just shocked that we are still using the electric chair. Yeah. Um, just on a basic level because it just sounds... And people think it sounds kind of like a medieval is not the right word because it has yeah. electricity. But you know what I mean? It just sounds, it sounds very, very
1: much like from the 20th. century.
0: Yeah, it just sounds kind of um, it's wild that right. the thing still exists. And um, so that that seems to strike people a lot. I mean, I think the mundane parts of it, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that sign to you and you right. had the same reaction that everyone had, which it's it just it's this weird uh, one one piece i wrote about one of these executions i said the experience was like a like a mashup of bureaucracy and barbarism it's like this weird some of it is just so boring and normal and then you're like oh but you're here for an execution you know it's like it so those are the things that are always strange to me and that i feel like always strike people as weird and that gets to a larger thing which is just the way that we carry these out are um you know i think there's there's plenty of ugliness associated with kind of public executions obviously the uh, the old west idea of like we're going to walk this guy to the gallows and and hang him in front of a crowd mm-hmm. we obviously in in america and in in the south and the state have a horrible history yeah. of lynching that is not separate from this so of course that's i'm not i'm not saying that's uh doing it that way is the way that is better or something i mean there's a whole laundry list of reasons that that's horrifying but there's a weird shift in the the move from like hey this you know the idea of this person's going to hang in the city streets or whatever to we're going to do this in a in a private room in the prison and with any luck not many people will hear or think about it right and that's you know that's kind of a weird thing and all those all those mundane aspects of the night make me think of that where it's like we've really done everything we can to make this just a kind of you know Mm ho-hum ordeal i mean that's lethal injection right it's like can we make an execution look like a medical procedure right um i mean the answer is no uh not just i say that not just as someone who's seen it but you know all you have to do is read about the horror shows that have resulted from these drugs that we use to to execute people and you can see that it's it hasn't been quite so so simple. But
1: how are how are you doing?
0: I'm alright. I um I I I have a good therapist um, uh, at the insistence of of a lot of people in my life. This is Um, my,
1: this is my plug that I tell everyone, say every time someone brings up a therapist is for everyone to go to therapy.
0: I am on that train. (laughs) I've offered to pay for people that I hardly know before. And it's not a judgment. It's just everyone should
1: go. And by the way,
0: I, I went to, I went to one before I ever witnessed an execution. So yes, go to one and do not feel any shame about it. But, but I mean... In all seriousness, yes, that is part of it. Um, uh, I do, th- you know, I I kind of, I wasn't really, uh, I said this after the, the recent execution, and, you know, I, I do think that I'll take a break from seeing these. Mm. I think it's really important. I think someone needs to do it, and I, I hate something about saying, like, someone needs to do that and not doing it doesn't feel quite right, but... Um, but I do think that it it definitely wears on you, you know, Mm. Um, you know, this recent one has stuck with me, I think a little more than, I don't know if there's some kind of amplifying effect or something, you know, but um, I do think it's a, it's a secondary trauma in a way. And I'm not trying to make myself the victim. I mean, I chose to be there and I'm, I think it's important to be there, but it is a, I also think it's important to be honest about how difficult it is to see, because that, again, I think we got to confront what we're actually doing. So it's like, and that's another weird thing about covering these as a journalist. You know, I – usually our job is not to put ourselves in the story and to just report what we see. And my job is a little different. You know, working for the scene, we we write – it's a little more magazine style or a little more – you know, we can we can be a little more creative in that sense with stories. And so I have a little more leeway there as opposed to if I were writing for a wire service, you know, where it's much more like, you know, trying to provide the bullet point facts of things. But with, with things like this, with covering executions, I mean, I in writing about them and in talking about them, I've just never felt like I could talk about them honestly without doing it in the first person, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, you're in the room. How can you pretend that you're not, you know? Right. So, and that's helpful. I mean, you asked how I'm doing. I mean, it's writing about these. Oddly, I I, I have throughout my career i've like struggled with anxiety about writing and i've had hard times before like sitting there looking at the blank screen you know like everyone probably does sometimes these things have always come out pretty quick after these executions and i think it's just there's a catharsis to it of just like you know writing out what it was like um so i think that's actually been helpful in a weird kind of way i have a lot of people be like man i'm you know i'm sorry that you had to do that and then you had to work you know to get up the next day and write about it. i'm like i you know to me that's like better than just Walking around doing something else and thinking about it, you know. So, right. So yeah.
1: Um, how? I mean, I so like typically you. Typically, in an interview, like I usually ask someone like intensively about like what they do and how they do whatever. Yeah, and sure. I'm like, what's your favorite thing about Nashville? Which would, which feels gauche right now, but uh,
0: <laughs> I, it's okay. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's all right. We, we gotta, we gotta, I mean, look, I, after these things, you still gotta go out to restaurants, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, we well, still I mean, gotta live. But.
1: What, what do you enjoy having been here, yeah, for, for 10 years or just about 10 years, a little, a little under? Um, what, what do you enjoy most about being here?
0: Um, so I think my answer to this is well, I, you know, personally, I had the weird, I think somewhat unique experience of moving up here with a bunch of my closest friends from, from college and from before, Mm -hmm. um, just by a strange series of events. Like I've, I've ended up here with a bunch of people I was already very close with. And so, you know, it could have been here. It could have been anywhere and if if that whole group was there i would have felt like okay i've got my community here i'm kind of set so that just as on a personal level is like influenced my experience being here i mean in terms of it being nashville my life right now doesn't lead to me like going out to a lot of like bars at night and checking out musicians or you know bands or whatever but I do still love just being adjacent to all that. Mm-hmm. I love, I mean I I'm really lucky cuz working at the scene, I'm always coming in and hearing our music editor or our, or our editor or someone else in the office talking about a new band I need to check out or I read the scene and I read about a new, you know, or like you know, so I I get to be close to that stuff and that's fun. Um and I just I just love living in a place where I know there's that kind of vibrant scene going on. Yeah. Um of course it's it's kind of Crashing up against like this growth that is making it harder for those people to even afford to live in the city or, 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 you know, all that. So that it's kind of an interesting moment for that reason. But I just like, even if I don't get to experience it all the time as much as I might if my life were a little different, I just, I just like living in a place knowing that in a place like that, you know. Right. Um, I do think that there's like a really fascinating, um, you know Nashville probably I would guess well I'd be interested to know what you think I mean you moved here before if before you moved here if you just thought oh Nashville is like white people and country music mm. and and the Southern Baptist Convention you know or whatever yeah. it's probably what I basically thought of Nashville but I mean obviously once you get here and you walk around a little bit and you learn I mean we're in we're not far from Jefferson Street you learn mm. about Nashville's African- American history we have this huge immigrant population you know the the largest population of Kurdish people outside of Kurdistan. I mean, we have like all this fascinating history and stuff going on here that living here long enough to get to know some of that has also been a real treat because it's it's just interesting. I mean, it's much more it's much more interesting than I think my idea of Nashville would have been if I didn't live here.
1: Right. And I think that that's you know, it's interesting. I actually uh, you know the country music thing for sure is, is sort of a prominent factor, yeah. not necessarily an exclusive factor. But I I hadn't necessarily thought about the racial identity of the city and not until I got here, but until I started to see how Nashville is trying to project itself out into the world, like hmm. the quote unquote, like new Nashville, yeah. um, you know, however you feel about it, it's projection is white. Yes. Like, I it's think that's like, I think that's right. People who appear on the, you know, sheets, you, you know, developed by the booster committee, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, like wispy blonde ladies in big hats and, <laughs> and you know, guys in flannel. And sure. You, yeah. You're almost wearing flannel right now. Yeah. But the, um, <laughs> um, um, so, so the, that has been that's been the interesting thing to reconcile is less about in England, I will admit, and I've said this before. My only understanding of the history of Nashville outside of the, the Opry uh is um Robert Altman's movie Nashville. True. So so I, I There are there are I,
0: worse <laughs> there are worse things that you could you could know about Nashville for yeah, sure. Yes, you I know, know what's know what funny that about that all answer. that is that I've actually I was never into country music and I've also loved all that. I mean I don't I don't like a lot of like mainstream country music but i've gotten way into like i love i've loved getting to know more about the history of country music Mm. and uh a lot of the sort of i guess you'd call them like i mean americana is what we call people who don't fit into country right now so i'm into all that stuff which doesn't make me like the most unique guy around but i've gotten real i've it has it has in a funny way everyone that i knew growing up was like would have would have laughed at me moving to nashville it's like because i never listened to country music i didn't like that kind of stuff but it's it's been fun to get to know that whole there's a lot of really great history there and oh god yeah i just i just
1: bought a ton of like bluegrass i forget what the what the actual name of the magazine is but there's a bluegrass magazine that's been around for like 50 years and i just bought a ton of issues from the 80s and 90s because like as a I, I agree. I just like I just like learning about history through the perspective of like whoever was doing what where.
0: Oh yeah, it's a blast. I mean, and to be able to go to a place like the Ryman, right. and just like sit there and think about who's played there and what's happened there is like that's you know that's yeah. the best.
1: After I, I did an, a, an episode about this, but after David Berman died, I read through oh, his yeah. blog quite a bit, and uh, I was surprised by how much. You know, his blog's fascinating because 97% he provided no personal context, no, mm-hmm. like, I'm posting this because, like, none sure. of it, just, that, just his blog. And I was surprised at how much, in this, I think, speaks to just being here for a long time, how much it was just related to country music. Like, hmm. it was just, like, a lot of Johnny Paycheck music videos, like, yeah, a lot yeah. of, like, you know, posts about, like, not about Jimmy Martin's life, but about Jimmy Martin's, like, a state. Like, just, like, a very strange... But yeah. you can't avoid it. It is the culture,
0: well, and you the know popular what's, culture. And it, what's funny, I mean, if we're not careful, we'll be here another hour talking about sure, this, sure. which we could do sometime. But uh, you mentioned the, the whole new Nashville idea. I mean, what's funny is, you know, it's like Nashville has had this, these boom years where the city's growing and more people are being interested in it and GQ wants to write about the city or whatever. And that's all well and good, I guess. But ideally, like, growth and... A national spotlight being on your city would bring attention to like all the most interesting things about the city And I feel like it's been like the opposite It's like right and I say this as someone who wrote thousands of words about bachelorette parties in Nashville So I'm you know, maybe that's like part of the problem But it's like it is a little weird that in a city that actually has so many like really interesting stories and and uh, You know kind of currents That you that you could look at it's like now you know, what we have to show for all this growth and stuff is like there's a hot tub on wheels downtown. Yeah, right. You know, it's like it's well, just I, so I it's a, so strange. It's like And I mean that's kinda here. why I love the premise yeah. of of your podcast, not okay. to not to uh you know blow smoke. But I mean is the idea of just like what's what's interesting that's going on here that maybe is is under the radar a little bit. But yeah, there's just there's so much fascinating stuff and it unfortunately it seems like rather than getting elevated, a lot of times it's just getting like covered up by the yeah. okay. The growth and well, all that.
1: that's but the that's the thing. You know, I, I was a I was a columnist for years, and I knew which columns would get read by a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I knew which columns would sure not. sure. And national demystified in one way or another is a lot of columns that are not going to get read by a lot of people, but the ones who do are into it, right? So, like, I think that that's the thing that ends up happening. Is this happened in Portland, Maine? Is once it started to get attention for a particular thing, people manufactured things to get that attention, and that cycle continued. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, I mean, it's. But I think the great thing about here, for sure, is that if you know where to look, which is not very far all the time, because there's a lot of awesome stuff happening, you can find great sure. stuff <laughs> sure, yeah. very easily. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, thank you just immensely for coming in and, and Thanks talking. for having me. It's a blast. Yeah. I, I ne- really appreciate it. Next time, we will talk only 10% of the time about your, your day job, and we'll talk about the other things that are that's
0: deal. Up. That's a deal. I'll do it. Awesome. I'll do it. Thanks. Thank you.
1: All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Nashville Demystified. Thank you to Jesse LaFontaine for all things related to sound post-production. Each episode has a show-specific illustration provided by my longtime friend, Tim Burns. They're pretty great. Check them out on the site and on social and elsewhere. Well, I mean, that's really it. There's no elsewhere in this situation. (laughs) Follow us in all the places, subscribe and do all that. Thank you so much for listening to Nashville Demystified. I hope you'll tune in again.